Welcome to App Etc, conversations with founders and leaders of product businesses in the Salesforce ecosystem. Today, I'm speaking with Stoney Gruneau, the founder and CEO of Breadwinner. Having started out running an SI for charities in the UK before starting Daddy Analytics, which connected Google Analytics with Salesforce. Then in 2014, Stoney focused on Breadwinner, which started as a tool to integrate Xero and Salesforce. They now improve the workflow of sales and finance between Salesforce and Xero, QuickBooks Online, and more recently NetSuite. In this episode, we talk about growing Breadwinner and some of the challenges moving up market. A lot of the changing roles came about as a function of just how many staff we had. So early on, it was just Joe and I on the non-developer side. And I think we had initially just one and then soon two developers on the coding side. And also back then, our only product was called Brebner. It's been renamed Brebner for Zero because that's what it did. It integrated with Zero Online Accounting. So what I was actually doing was pretty much or Joe and I were doing everything other than development. So we would handle sales calls. We would, I was the one who built the initial website. We would talk to customers. We talked to prospects. I would do the architecture. So it, I, it was pretty expansive in that we would just have to do pretty much everything. And then as the team slowly grew, all of a sudden someone else might take over a bit of the sales engineering work or someone might take over the sales side. I think it was just a function of growth, to be honest. I assume you were hiring for roles to fulfill the areas that you didn't yourself want to be doing or didn't see yourself as strong as that. What was demanding where you were hiring? We had so little money that initially our hiring was just developers. Also because we had so few clients when we first started out that we could do everything ourselves anyway. Maybe not well, and maybe we didn't necessarily enjoy it or it wasn't our strong suit, but we just had to do everything ourselves. And then at what stage did you start bringing people in? When we had enough money to bring people in. So actually when customer sales could pay for someone else's salary, that was usually when we brought someone else in. At this stage of the business, at the stage that the business is now, where, where do you find yourself spending the most time or what, what are you thinking about the most? Is it on the, the sales side, commercial side, marketing, product, anywhere else? I think it's down to strategy because what my experience has been is, is two things, and, and, and one of them is unique to Brebner. It's very tricky to find customers who would want Brebner because they have to be technically qualified. They have to have both Salesforce and they have to have an accounting system that we work with. So I'm sure there's a dollar amount we could pay to find the ideal company and then another dollar amount, either in terms of our own payroll costs or an outside marketing agency. We could definitely find those people. But the, if the cost of finding them is more than we're ever going to make from selling Brebner, it means that we functionally can't find people. So when we look at expansion, you take a look at your business and you say, who needs to have some kind of task structure or completion or project management? Who isn't at one point in their company running a project? Pretty much every company needs to run projects. Every company needs to get tasks done. So you could go out there and really advertise to any Salesforce company, whereas we find that we can't really advertise effectively, so we wait for them to come in. So if we want to increase our marketing, what we have to do is effectively get our developers to build another app. And then all of a sudden we get a quote, free marketing channel. It's not really free, it's earned. When we jumped from just helping people who are Googling, how do I integrate Zero and Salesforce, when we added QuickBooks, great. Now we can help anyone who Googles, how do I integrate Salesforce with QuickBooks Online or QuickBooks Desktop? And that effectively doubled our marketing channel. And then we added NetSuite and we got another marketing channel. So I view our marketing for Brebner as effectively adding more apps. And, and how, did you choose, how did you choose which of those other accounting platforms to go with? Was it just obvious through the conversations you were having that QuickBooks, was the, QuickBooks Online was the next one and NetSuite following that? Or did yeah, you so put up any was, landing pages and see what SEO was coming through? We did do that for a few things. So for instance, we put up a landing page for how to integrate Salesforce with Sage. 
And I think, I don't think we even specify whether it was Sage 50 or Sage Live or whatever. And we basically got nobody asking, even though the landing page was there. Whereas when we were only selling Breadwinner for zero, we were still getting people saying, oh, can you please do this for QuickBooks Online? And then once we're doing it for QuickBooks Online, people say, can you please do it for QuickBooks Desktop? Which is why we're doing that too. And then we lost a few of our best clients, best in terms of their size and their, their good, they had a very good technical fit. We quote, lost them. They didn't stop using Breadwinner per se. They moved from zero to NetSuite. And we had saw that again and again and again. Once a company hits 60, 80, 100 staff, they're probably going to find that zero isn't handling their business and they're going to move to something else. And NetSuite's a very logical choice. So we built NetSuite in part because we're like, huh, just these customers alone would have helped make the development almost break even. So let's do that, if nothing else, just to stop losing customers. And I'm sure we'll pick up as we have some other customers who didn't even hear about us before. It was interesting how they, they, they mature out of using zero and therefore you lose them as a customer. We lose some customers every now and then when they move away from Salesforce. And there's very little we can do about that. With your product, they could leave Salesforce, they could leave zero. And then your product is fairly redundant for them. And maturity for us, it's customers might start with a customer onboarding function and then want to run professional services teams. And as just task feed, we served customer onboarding teams, implementation teams, but people would struggle when it got to professional services. Now with Precursive, we do allow you to go up through those ranks, which is a similar kind of capturing the top level maturity for you of someone going from zero into, into NetSuite. So it's like, we need to get that market so they can stay with us. They just go from one product to another. Yeah, it is tricky being doubly technically qualified. And we definitely lose customers when we reach out to them. Very often the answer is we left Salesforce or we left our, the accounting system that, that you integrate with. So yeah, it's, that was partly one of the reasons. What changed about the business when you started focusing on NetSuite? That's a different type of customer, I'd assume. I'd say we're still figuring it out because the way I view business is you're, you're building muscles just like you are in the gym. And if you look at Zero and QuickBooks Online, the staff count for a company using Zero QuickBooks is going to probably be under 100, which means at the end of the day, it's an SMB sale. It needs to be very easy to set up. It needs to be easy to onboard. It can't be that complicated. You certainly can't have a six-week implementation time for a product that's going to cost a couple thousand dollars a year or more. So we are very good at that quick and easy, get in there, set it up well. Whereas all of a sudden with NetSuite, they understandably have different processes because they have 200, 500, 1,000 staff and they want different aspects of an enterprise sales process. Signing an NDA is very common when we're demoing NetSuite. I don't really think we've ever signed, you know, maybe 1% of our zero and QuickBooks online customers will want an NDA. So there's all sorts of additional questions that you have to go through in the enterprise sales cycle. And we're absolutely still figuring that out. The only advantage we have is that because we've cut our teeth on onboarding that should take less than an hour, our NetSuite tool takes that same, the same genes, so to speak. And we are in funny situations where people are like, okay, how many weeks of professional services is this, is this going to take to accomplish? I'm like, just install our, our free trial. It, it, it's there, like it's done. And it's very strange for people to hear that what might have taken not just a subscription, but two to four weeks of professional services with Saliga or Boomi, it's just there. And that's actually been hard to communicate that value because people come up, they, people show up looking at subscription pricing and they don't often include not only the, the cost of professional services, but just how long it's going to take. And then there's no guarantee you're going to get exactly what you thought you were getting. Communication is always an issue with professional services. It cannot be. So we're still figuring out how to emphasize that as well in our sales cycle. It's something that I've looked at with us bringing in a lower cost or a freemium model is one of the reasons why I want to do it is because it does force you to really improve that onboarding experience for the customer because you just can't you're like you're doing it for yourself at that point but the outcome also improves the customer's experience as well because they can just get up and get going themselves trying to position that to a more mid-market enterprise buyer is I guess something that they're probably not expecting 
or so it's something that and something that you haven't perhaps had to position before other than just get started just use it or start the trial and push someone through just an onboarding like a, a free trial flow for example yeah and it, it's been funny people have given us these multi-page documents of all the checklists and i'm like i can answer this it'll take three hours or you could just install the free trial and in 30 minutes you could see the results and it's very tricky saying that graciously and not making it sound like no we don't really want to answer your list of requirements it's not that we're against it it's just that the answer will be much more tangible if you install it and we're still figuring out how, how to say that in such a way that it comes off, off very well. You can solve the problem with Breadwinner before you've even evaluated the, the competition. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and as for freemium, we just introduced that earlier this year and we're also still figuring that out. But I will say this, I'm very glad we didn't start off with the freemium version because it took us a very long time to understand where a freemium made sense. For instance, if you only have two or three people in your company, they're probably all at the founder or first employee kind of level, and they all probably have access to your accounting system. So in that situation, Breadwinner saves them copying and pasting, which is cool, but it's not as big as a company that has 20 sales staff. If you've got 20 sales staff, you absolutely don't want them, all of them logging into your accounting system. It's a security nightmare. It's all sorts of issues. So you want to restrict their ability to create invoices to just creating invoices. Zero and QuickBooks doesn't really have that concept of that type of user. So you either have to use Brebner or you have to have your staff email the CFO the invoice they want to create. So as they grow larger, it's not just that the benefit increases per user, it's that the benefit increases implicitly because we can now give them a security model. But at two staff, you don't care about that security model. Why would you? Everyone's already in your accounting system. So that's where our freemium is designed to, okay, you probably don't even really need Bremeter at this point. You're only two or three Salesforce users, but hey, here's a free tool that will help you do a couple of things. And when you're ready, you can start paying when you grow. And I would not have understood that subtlety on day one. And we did it for four or five years before we launched freemium. Yeah, so it's not about the number of users that you have. It's about what can you give someone to appease a segment of the market that you know, there just isn't the value for them to buy yet, but there might be in the future. Is that the idea? Yeah, the idea is how can we give for all the people who probably wouldn't buy from us or even worse would buy from us on year one, but the, the year two, they go, ah, we don't really know if we need this tool. I'd still like to be able to help people who say, I don't know if we really need it and just keep them in the fold. And maybe in two or three years, they'll turn around and say, great, we're now, we are now 30 staff or 10 staff or who knows what we will now start paying. What's your experience been with pricing Breadwinner throughout the different stages from going from zero to the QuickBooks product into, into NetSuite? So I, zero and QuickBooks have almost the same profile of a customer. So those, that pricing is the same. NetSuite is very different. And we're, it's, the NetSuite accounting system is so complex that we are still so actively building features. It's very hard to understand where that's going to go. But with zero and QuickBooks, we... I had a, this came from an experience of being a Salesforce consultant. And so when you're a Salesforce consultant, you're working with a lot of customers who are installing a bunch of different Salesforce apps. And of course they're trying to keep their costs down. So whenever you see an app that is per user, the first question everyone legitimately asks is how few people can I give this to? The problem with that in the invoicing situation is they might turn around and say, great, I'm only going to give this to one or two people who need it. But then you get the detriment of the fact that, in my opinion, everyone in your, if you can see an opportunity in the opportunity value, you already know what's supposed to happen financially with that company. So why not show them whether the invoice was issued or not? Why not show them the invoice amount? Why not show them the invoice paid date or the fact that it's due or overdue? Like these are all useful things. And if the customer calls up about a support query, the support person can say, hey, did you know you have an invoice overdue? I'll send you the PDF right now. Or why not have the salesperson go from sale to invoice in the customer's inbox in minutes? There's a lot of benefits, but they're not crushingly important. So I can imagine someone coming up and saying, you know what, we're only gonna take two licenses for Brebner. So I didn't want that. I wanted Brebner to be a company-wide tool, but how do you price that for organizations that range in size and everything? So we went around the per 
invoice metric initially. So small was like X many invoices per month, large, medium and large were just invoice tiers. And that was our pricing for the first year. And then we realized we had massively overestimated how many invoices someone would do when half of our customers were on our smallest plan. But okay, we need to rejigger this. And then we rejiggered it and that worked better. And then we started adding in more features and significant ones that kind of doubled the size of the tool. So then all of a sudden, as we added these major new features, we would add new tiers. So it wasn't just your invoice count, but it's your invoice count plus features. And if you, one of my favorite people to listen to when they talk about pricing in the SaaS world is David Scott, who has a bunch of um, slides up on SlideShare. He's often speaking at SaaS Doc and Saster. And he will say that your pricing should eventually have three metrics. And that with Salesforce, you get the per user metric. So the more users you have, the more you pay. That with Salesforce, when you can sign up for professional or enterprise or unlimited. And, and then they also might have, say, your data plan or who knows what. So they'll often have some kind of neutral third kind of uh, axis, axis, who knows. And that's what you eventually want to move towards. And people are like, when they start off, and I didn't know this either, people are like, why are you so focused on pricing? It's because if you can't, if you can't get close to net negative churn, in other words, what happens with the people who signed up last year? Are all the people who signed up last year going to pay you a little bit more this year or a little bit less? And if they're paying you a little bit less, your company will eventually be swimming against the tide, so to speak. And you'll be putting this huge effort trying to just keep your sales flat because as customers leave, you constantly need to replace that with new customers. And if you look at, you can Google Slack negative churn and you can Google a couple of things. You look at things like Box and they have, I think, 140% retention, meaning that whatever people paid last year, this year, they're paying about 140%, including the people who canceled. So that's incredible. Once you get a customer, it is its own sales machine as you can deliver more and more value and they will pay you more and more. And that's, I think, why companies, SaaS companies obsess about pricing, because if you can't get close to no churn, at least no dollar churn, your company's going to turn into just a giant machine just to, to swim in place. Do that through increasing the number of users, increasing the tier that they're on or their usage, or by adding new features and getting someone to upgrade to that higher tier, which is what you were experimenting with in a, in a couple of different places. Did you find that you were getting customers to upgrade tiers to like take advantage of those new features? Or is it just that new customers were coming in and choosing a higher or lower tier based on the capability of Breadwinner at the time? They would largely be self led. We didn't have a marketing machine to let our existing customers know about new features. But what we would try to do is we would, for instance, way back in Breadwinner, we would show them the invoice data. And then customers said, I really need the PDF. And I'm like, all right, that's a pretty reasonable request. We built that in. And then the next thing, and it was funny because just building that one feature caused eight more feature requests. So the second you could download the invoice, they said, why can't I email the invoice? I'm like, all right, that's a fair question, but we're like, okay, you can download the invoice in all versions, but to send the invoice using Salesforce, including marking it as sent in the accounting system, including adding the activity history, including doing all this stuff, that's the next level. And then people said, oh, great, I can send it. Why can't I integrate with Salesforce email templates? Why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? And I'm like, okay, we'll build that too. And then that went into the third tier. So even just doing that one single feature of letting people download a PDF of the invoice from the accounting system created all these additional requests. But what we have is we, on all versions of Breadwinner, there is the button, send this invoice as a PDF to the customer as email. I don't remember the button text, it's shorter than that, but we, we offer them the button. But if they're on the bottom plan, it says, you can't do this on the basic plan, please contact sales for more information. So this way, regardless of the plan people are on, they're at least aware of the functionality. If you start grouping up functionality and taking some things away, then people just don't know it's ever there. It's ever possible for them to use. So they might not even think to talk to you about upgrading. So you need to make sure that they know that there is something more that they could do with your product so they could pay more and get whatever it is um, and see the value in it. And this is also why personally, I think both the Salesforce extension packages 
and the Salesforce feature management activation, sometimes called the FMA. I think these are very good tools in theory, but the problem is that it takes a marketing effort to let your customers know they exist. For the FMA, you have to turn it on or off. For the extension package, your customers have to install something extra. This is a tremendous amount of work for everyone. And that's why I'm glad we built our own kind of homegrown level, because with the feature management, either it's there or it's not. Whereas I would want a grayed out button that says you could do this if you had a higher version. And we could even emulate that functionality. We could even, you know, there's a lot of things you can do. So I've found that building our own structure around this, rather than using Salesforce's extension packages or FMA has allowed us to do that. And I think if we were selling huge $100,000 annual contracts, we could afford the sales effort where the salesperson would reach out and explain this and the person would be listening. But our users are, are busy people. They're running small businesses. They don't have time or they want to talk to a salesperson. They just want to get their job done. But if in the process of seeing that, if in the process of doing their job, they can see, oh, this will be helpful. Great. They'll reach out. Have you done any in-app product marketing to your customer base, advertising new features, not necessarily one-on-one, but through kind of webinars or emails or in-app prompts, that type of thing? We definitely could do a better job of doing that. We don't do any in-app prompts. We do some quarterly newsletters where we will talk about some of the things we've done, but getting people to be aware of that is just not a, a muscle we've developed as much as we would have liked to. But we do try to show what they would have on some level, regardless of what edition they're on. So they get an idea of what the higher editions will have. What are you trying now with pricing? Now that you've got so you've got this mid-market enterprise strategy around NetSuite, SMB strategy around QuickBooks and Zero. Some of it is pretty interesting. We have discovered a cohort of prospects for Zero and QBO that are fast-growing, up-and-coming tech companies. And they will often say, look at the invoice count and say, our growth plan calls for us to be doing 30 times the number of invoices as we're doing today in two years. And I'm like, really? 30x growth in two years? That's a little bit ambitious, but it's in their growth plan, so they can't not consider it. So we have special plans for companies that are expecting massive growth. So we've done that because they will look at the per invoice pricing as something they are concerned about. We've also done other things with NetSuite. For instance, with NetSuite, you can enter your employee expenses in it. But to actually do that, you either need a NetSuite license or an Expensify license or what? And so now with Brebner, you can actually now have your staff entering their expenses in NetSuite. And we're still figuring out where we're trying to position this, but legitimately, we might be saving them $25 a user a month to NetSuite licenses for just doing the same exact thing. And it's like, how can we enhance this so that our tool is better? They're already in Salesforce and so forth. But we are such early days, it's still every customer usually has their own unique needs and we're still coding for that. Yeah, trying to figure out what is the situation that people are entering their expenses? Is it around travel? Is it around projects? Is it around something else? Or or do they even want it? And a lot of companies will say, oh no, we use Concur. We have no interest in that. We already have our expenses set up. And that's an area where like you need sometimes I think a hundred customers just to understand what 1% of them will want. You get 10 customers, there could be something demanded hypothetically by 5% that you easily wouldn't even know about yet. So what do you use as your validation then for building or making decisions or prioritizing work around NetSuite? Okay, so for example, I'll, I'll be very transparent. So right now you can enter your expenses in NetSuite but we haven't built the feature for the manager to prove those expenses. But rather than not show anything, if you go to Brebner for NetSuite, there will be a menu item, enter expenses, and there'll be a menu item that says approve expenses. It's very easy to put a menu item in there, so we did. And when they click on it, it says, please contact sales to enable this feature for your org. Guess what? We haven't built it yet. So there is no contact sales to enable this, but in reality, it's contact sales, and if you really want this, we'll make sure we can build it into our next revision. It's just like a lead form, but within the app. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And it's, it's what you did place. with Sage, but with a specific feature within in that suite. 
Yeah, because there is, <laughs> when you're building something like this, there is no guidebook you can follow. There is no way to know what your customers will actually want until you start building it and you find out that they're not using half of what you thought they'd use and they want another half that you never even considered. And you're like, okay, back to the drawing board, which is why I just like to get out there as quickly as I can and start to understand where people are going to be happy and not happy with a product and keep on working on it. So my experience has been, it's about... 12 to 18 months from the first line of Apex to being listed on the app exchange. 12 to 18 months is my range of single line of code to pass security review and fully listed on the app exchange. But then it's another six to 12 months to be even comfortable with where your features are. And we've done Breadwinner for Zero and, and QuickBooks for six, seven years and four years respectively. We just built out another major feature that so people can now track unpaid invoices. So you're constantly discovering how can we make our products even better for our customers. So if for whatever reason they are, as COVID hit, they're looking to, to reduce expenses everywhere, how can we make sure that we are the last tool they will cancel? And you can't do that by being anything other than the best tool. You know, cancellation is always an option for the customer. So you almost have to wake up and say, how do we make sure that we keep on helping them run their business as well as they possibly can? And then they'd never want to cancel us. And there's also adding significantly more value than just a connector app. You're like, you're, you're, you've gone way beyond just showing invoices against Salesforce accounts or sending invoices through to your accounting system. You're now trying to build in some of the workflow that someone would, something that would happen around those invoices or that payments or payment reconciliation, that type of thing. And I, I think we are still trying to figure out how to communicate that because people will show up and they'll have a vague idea that they need to integrate sales and finance, but they won't necessarily understand that by doing so, they will get the invoice in their customer's inbox three, five days faster. And because of that, their cash flow is accelerated. They won't necessarily think about the fact that they have invoices that have gone unpaid for months, sometimes never, just because there wasn't a good system for everyone in the company to know about that and that they look at it as just a tool. And I'm like, actually, how many hours is your CFO spending preparing the accounts receivable overdue, emailing out to everyone, everyone's reading it, and all of those. I, I joke that we are one of the unsexiest tools on the planet. Nobody wants to hear about how you synchronize invoice data. You couldn't find a drier, more boring topic. And to make it almost more comically worse, we don't do anything truly groundbreaking. What we do is we save people 10 minutes or 20 minutes per invoice, which actually doesn't seem like a big deal. If I came to you and said, Andy, I can save you 20 minutes. Would you like to buy it? But would you like to buy these 20 minutes? You're like, yeah, I don't know, Stoney. Thank you. I've got something better to do with my life. But if I come to you and I say, I'm going to save you 20 minutes times 100 or 20 minutes times 1,000, you're like, geez. 20,000 minutes, if someone can do the math for me, I don't know, whatever that 300 hours or something like that, then absolutely. Who wouldn't want to buy 300 hours of their employee time back? So we have real problems communicating that what we're actually selling is we're selling the employee's time back to the company at a massively reduced rate. I know. I think I'd go back to something you said a few minutes ago that I think is more powerful than that, which is you're, you're driving cash flow for a small business. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more important for a small business than cash flow. Like you will die if, if you don't manage your, your cash flow. And that, that's what you said you're doing. It's not just that you're not saving the person 10 minutes from inputting an invoice. That's just a side effect of breadwinner. What you're actually giving is visibility through the whole business for unpaid invoices and bad cash flow accounts. So if your account manager has visibility that their account is not paid, then they can take action from Salesforce to get it paid. You're not waiting for accounts receivable or your CFO or whoever to, to manage that. It can be picked up by anyone. If support are having a conversation with the account, they can see the invoice status of the account and take action or, or prompt them to pay. Or if, if your customer success team is engaging the account, they can see it. So I'd see that as the most valuable, as more of a hook for a small business, which is, you come to us just trying to connect Salesforce to zero. What we're going to help you with is to improve your cash flow. Yep. 
Um, and that's where that someone, that's where it can really help. And if you take it away, you might, oh, it's just Joe will just spend 10 more minutes on that invoice. That might be okay. But if the ramification of that is that all these other people in the business aren't following up and putting pressure on these late paying customers to actually pay their invoices, you might find you're having more bad debt, for example. Yep. But um, even looking at, maybe even doing some survey of your customers, like saying, what is your time to pay pre and post breadwinner? What is your amount of bad debt pre and post breadwinner? It, you could probably even measure it for your customers on month one of using breadwinner versus month 12 of using breadwinner. What, what's the time to pay? Andy, can I hire you for survey and marketing uh, <laughs> services? Uh, we have, we're at capacity. If you're not too busy with precursive, we'd love to. I'm mainly joking. I know you're probably working 80 hours a week, but yeah, I, I love that idea. I'm now thinking who can actually do that. I'm always trying to look at what can we take out of our product? Mm-hmm. One thing that I love about MailChimp is that when you send an email, it tells you what your like bounce rate is, what your click rate is, and, and all of these other metrics, which if you're a part-time marketer, which is what I was when I was using MailChimp, I had no idea what that meant. Is 30% good or bad? Oh, yeah. So what it tells you is it baselines it against your other campaigns, but it also baselines it against a similar cohort of company. So it could say you have like your unsubscribe rate on this email was 1%. For you, it's usually what 0.5% across your industry for a company size of companies less than 50 people in technology it's usually less than 0.2%. So you're like, oh, whoops, what did I do? I've got a higher unsubscribe rate on this email. So you can start to, it's giving you not just information, but it's giving you a bit of insight as well. So it's yeah, also a similar thing. So like for yeah. you, you could be by industry, what is your time to pay? I don't even know what the invoicing, but what, what the financial term is, it? but like the, the, the time it takes from invoice to paid. What, mm-hmm. what is that for this customer? What is it for all of your customers? And I don't know whether you could do this, what information you have about all of this, but could you say, what is this across a cohort of breadwinner customers? I really like that. I think I've already figured out, yeah, we could probably have that as a feature within breadwinner and you click on the menu. I don't know what the menu item would be called, but it would start to show you your invoices and whether they were paid early or late as a graph and we would know, of course, when Brebner was installed. And if they had been using an accounting system historically for any X years before, we could show them, here's what was happening in your accounting system before that, because we know the invoice date, the due date, and the payment date. And then we could chart off, put a little line there for you got Brebner here. And hopefully that line would be lower. Mm-hmm. If the line's higher, this isn't the greatest marketing. Uh, <laughs> well, if it's approach. lower, you probably need to go back and figure out how you make it lower, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good point. Huh, I like that. I think I just figured out what our next speculative kind of feature set build will be. Thank you, Andy. And, and suddenly your positioning is like that. You take that graph, average it across all of your customers, and you say, this is what Breadwinner does. They started with bad debt, 90-day payments. They're now down to 30-day payments and no bad debt. Yeah. Maybe that's not true. I don't know. But like, it'd be interesting to do the analysis and see. And we can build that right into Salesforce so they can just click on it because all that data will be right there in their Salesforce org and historical invoices. Thank you. This yeah. is turning into a lightweight consulting <laughs> session. Something that I noticed when I went onto your website before this call, which I wasn't actually aware of, that all of your pricing now either says forever free or contact sales. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Or did I miss yeah. something? Yep. Yep. We, we made that change to pull the pricing off of the website. And I think one of the challenges of that is people come in with an expectation that this might be something like Zapier. You know, not only is it going to be very cheap, 30 to $50 a month, but they have a vague idea that it's going to do something. You mark an opportunity closed one and they want a trigger to happen. And so the challenge is we are often talking about our price and their imagined feature set. And it only takes two seconds to go to the pricing page and they think, oh, I don't know if I'd pay that for the feature set I've already imagined. So by taking the pricing off the website, and this is in my mind, maybe our sales staff would say something different, but we get to make sure that they're comparing our price to our feature set. And I think that's been helpful Certainly from our point of view, I don't know if it's been 
helpful for our prospects, but I think it has because they aren't in the situation of declining a tool they would happily pay for. So uh, it comes down to that challenge of positioning against competitors that aren't actually that close to a solution. Like they're competitors, but it's a different solution. It could be Dell Boomi or whatever at the high end, pay thousands and thousands of pounds for a solution that's probably overkill or Zapier at the low end, which is going to stop working one day. Someone logs out of an account and it's all broken. All, all the stuff that can happen with that. And then breadwinner at the, in the middle that we've already said it's gone well beyond a connector in terms of value add. So how do you, how do you make sure people know that? Yeah, because they've got interest. They've probably been to our website because they either Googled or they asked their Salesforce consultant, how do I do this? And then they're in their initial research phase. I say this as an aside, but sometimes people will say to me, how much does Rubiner cost? And I'll say about as much as a used car. And they're like, that's not as helpful. A used car can be $1,000. It can be $50,000. Who knows what? I'm like, but that's the point. You can't just say, how much does it cost? What are you getting? It's so radically yeah. different when you buy a used car. It reminds me of when we, we had a booth at Dreamforce once. And I was talking to a, a, a quite like an enterprise customer. And they were like, just we're on the booth talking about the product. And they were just talking about, okay, that they were interested. They, they liked the concept. They were asking about pricing. Like, how much, does it, how much does this cost? I said, probably less than your hotel rooms for one night at this conference. <laughs> yes, it's yes. Like, and to put it in perspective, it's, whoa. <laughs> yeah. And I have also found that we have had situations where people have really tried to hammer us on price and then they will submit one of our like you know terms of service to their legal team and their legal team will spend 10 hours pouring over it and i'm like if you look at the salaries of the people on this call already you're above our first year subscription just like for everyone on this you know, there might be eight people on a call yeah. and the call goes an hour they're going to talk about it after so you've suddenly got a tremendous amount of payroll going into this then you've got the legal internal hidden fees I'm like, we're a fraction. The subscription is actually a fraction of, of what you've already allocated to this. But you don't really want to come out and just say but that. I, I think that's a, good, that's a good tip for someone that's starting. Like, something that I just noticed then on your website, on your enterprise tier, you talk about like NDAs, DPAs, vendor approval, blah, 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 blah. Compliance stuff, basically. Anything compliance or legal related, boom, you're in the enterprise because otherwise it's just not worth your time. If that's important to you, you need to pay more because our our SMB pricing isn't designed to have that overhead on it. It's, you um, see that a lot with websites. We picked this up from Chargeify, but they would say standard NDA, standard various documents is on most of their pricing. But if you want a bunch of custom stuff, that's enterprise. And people do that with HIPAA too. And I really doubt they build two versions of their software. It's not like they have their HIPAA version of software and their non-HIPAA version of software. Yeah. But people who are buying HIPAA software such a more complicated sales cycle with so many more, they have so much more need for documentation and legal certainty that it does add this tremendous extra cost. I remember we sold to a Fortune 500 company, another app, not Brebner, and I was amazed that I would have had to hire lawyers to go through their suggested changes to our terms of service. Yeah. And I'm like, the lawyer's fee would cost more than selling this. So we, we pushed back and we said, look, we're sorry, but you're either going to have to pay radically more or you're going to have to drop this because there's no way I can't play amateur lawyer for every customer. And I'll say a, a good tip that the, the, you said it earlier. It's not like they're putting them on non-HIPAA infrastructure. <laughs> like it's all that, oh, you're going to go on our, our sort of security bug ridden platform, yeah. our good platform. It's the same thing. It's just that then some pre-sales engineer isn't or like some information security person isn't going through a form and filling it out it's the, the documentation of the HIPAA compliance and answering all their questions in their weird excel format or their weird online portal that's what you want to save yourself from we're not doing that for 200 bucks a month thank you very much like, yeah i totally did not appreciate this when i was a customer when I was on the customer side, I didn't have any concept of all this. But once you're on the flip side, particularly with SaaS software, what people will generally say is that the sales effort alone will eat the first year of subscription. And very often it's the development effort that eats the second year. So but that's also one thing I really like about SaaS software. 
So if you take hypothetically an unethical used car salesman and an ethical used car salesman, it's probably the case that the unethical used car salesman will make more money than the ethical one. Whereas in SaaS software, because we borderline lose money on customers that cancel after a year, even if we were unethical, it's financially better for us to be ethical. And I very much like industries where the ethical people will rise to the top because you're never really in conflict. And, and that's the issue is like, I remember when subscription software was just coming to the fore, a lot of people were complaining that, oh, you never stop paying. Oh, the price keeps on going and so forth. But because of that, the provider of the software cares inherently that you have a great experience, that you stick around, that you keep on using it rather than a CD. I sold a CD, my job is done. Maybe I'm gonna go pay someone in an offshore call center to answer support as cheaply as I possibly can because that's just a cost to me. Whereas for us, support is, sure, of course it's a cost, but it's also an opportunity to make sure our customers are happy. So why wouldn't we wanna offer great support? So I, I love that aspect of subscription businesses because when you have a situation where you have a one-off single sale, you open up the possibility for an unethical or someone who is, is not honest about marketing, you open up the possibility of them making more money. It aligns the risk and motivations of the buyer and the seller a lot more. Like you're, you're in it for the long haul together. So I'm not going to take your year one revenue and run. That's not really done it for me. I'm still unprofitable if I take your year one money and run. I need your year two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> That's where I actually make my money. So if you're churning out in year one for whatever reason, we might as well have not started this because it was a waste of time. Like we lost money on, on year one. Don't, don't think that we're running off because we've made year one revenue and we're happy. We lost money on that. Yep. And that's in a sense why our freemium version was built. I said, who are all the customers that churn after one year? And while it's certainly not all, if I see someone show up with say two or three Salesforce licenses on a Salesforce professional org, I would rather they use us for six or 24 months for free first. Just enjoy it. And when you're at the size, great rather than having them sign up for a year and cancel. So, so actually now you're in a situation where pricing is off the page. They engage with a salesperson to discuss the solution and pricing. I assume before that you had pricing for everything, but maybe enterprise, I think it was at one point. What, what do you think is, or like, what, what have you tried and, and, and tested well, with? I'll certainly tell you what we're looking at. One of the things we're looking at, and this is the case for those very high growth tech startup-esque businesses. They want both certainty that as they grow, they can understand their pricing, but we also want to get them ready for the fact that they're probably going to be moving to NetSuite in a year or three anyway. And you might even be familiar with this if you look at demand tools. I forget who the original owner was when I was in the Salesforce world, but they were bought by Validity. So when you get validity demand tools, you pay per Salesforce user, regardless of whether that Salesforce user has it. So it's a site license, but it's priced per user, which is very different than Salesforce, which is strictly per user. So with validity, even if you only have one admin using it, you pay per platform or Salesforce user. So that is how we've taken the approach for the per invoice pricing. And yeah, we're still playing around with it. One thing we never did was to price per revenue of your company. And I think that's really tricky because people, I think, have a real emotional feeling against that. So if you look at a credit card processor, they will take usually that three-ish percent. And I've seen a couple other apps, both Visible and Nimble, will connect your Salesforce or to your Google AdWords spend and both those apps, I believe, price per dollar spent. But even then, they won't do it by percentage because, again, I think people feel very unhappy if you feel like you're taking a percentage of their business. So they will price that in tiers, which is really a hidden percentage with stability. So I guess it's better for everyone. I think some of you, I guess they're competitors, not really. Like charge B is not really a competitor, but it's solving a problem of pricing. I guess, but more in a subscription model. And I think SaaS Optics do this as well. I think they price mm -hmm. on 
invoice amount or revenue going through the business, which is, I, I think if you're selling to a, if you're selling to the founder, <laughs> I think it's probably very emotional. <laughs> like, yeah. Whoa, that's my money. <laughs> that's my money, big guy. <laughs> Hands off. But I guess what they're trying to do is hook onto like the, the, the value tiers, aren't they? And there's nuance because as I recall, Recurly and Chargeify and maybe Chargebee, I'm not too sure, price usually around one and a quarter percent on credit yeah. card transactions, but not on invoices that are paid through ACH. Whereas SaaS Optics and Stripe Billing charge 0.4% on everything, including if you just issue the invoice, the customer then writes you a check and you deposit in your bank, SaaS Optics and Stripe will want 0.4% on that. Whereas Recurly and Chargeify will want nothing on that, but they will pay, take a percent and a quarter on your credit card sales. So again, you see this wide variation in how people approach this. But when they're able to do that and they're successfully able to convince the customer that is appropriate, man, you can get some big deals. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would not object if a customer came along and said, I want to give you a percentage of my business forever, but not surprisingly, no one has. So right now you're free or contact sales. Is your free, can they just start? Can they just get going? They yeah, they, so everybody can install our free trial and that starts at our professional level. And the reason we picked that is because there's no real complicated configuration for professional. For business and higher, there can be some complications around setting that up. It's not that hard, but it still needs a salesperson to, or a sales engineer to help you, even if just for an hour. So we start people off on professional, they get it for two weeks and before when they expired, it just stopped. So now when they expire, they go down to freemium automatically. So they don't even have to think about it. And this was in part because I said, I heard a great podcast from, I think it was Hitton Shah talking about, well, do you want freemium or not? And a lot of people say you shouldn't do freemium in business because you're never gonna get them to convert. My attitude was, because on his side, which was the opposite, is that if you get a customer who tries your product and they're not ready to pay, what do you want to say to them? Do you want to say, no, go away. I don't want to have anything to do with you until you're willing to pay. Or do you want to keep them in the fold? And I think that's the idea because a lot of the times with Brebner for Zero and Brebner for QuickBooks Online, our competition is not another tool. I think our competition is just your life is so darn busy. So maybe you had great intentions and then who knows what, something at home happened, something at work happened, COVID happened, who knows what. And all of a sudden your ability to say, huh, do I want to engage with this company? Do I want to sign a subscription with them? It's just kicked into next week and kicked into next week. And before you know it, three months later, what do we want them to be doing in those three months? We're quite happy for them to be using a very limited version of Brebner for, for forever. Is that conversion something that you're monitoring closely? No, we, it's on our to-do list because I think that went live coincidentally right around COVID. And then we've just been so busy with all of the changes. Some of our customers doubled and quadrupled their volume. One of our customers worked with hair salons. And as you can imagine, their business effectively disappeared because all the hair salons, I mean, COVID is a little bit bizarre in the sense that if I came to you a year ago, Andy, and I said, I predict that next year at this time, there won't be a single hairstylist in business. You would have probably laughed at me and said, Stoney, you're crazy and dumb. But lo and behold, it happened. If I was running a, a business working with hair salons, I would say hair salons have not, you know, like there has always been the ability to go in and get, a, get your hair cut. Like for the last 500 years, last million years, who know, I don't know, people have been cutting their hair and paying for it. So the suggestion that nobody would pay to get their hair cut for three months was almost inconceivable, but it happened. So you can't, you certainly can't predict what the heck is going to happen next year. What's next for breadwinner in terms of whether it's oh pricing goodness. or product or strategy. So what's, what's been interesting is that we've just added QuickBooks desktop to our portfolio. And we are in conversations with some companies who have been in that space for a while and it's not their primary focus anymore. So that's one thing we're looking at. And then we're looking at in the bigger picture, what are the areas that, what do people do after they issue an invoice? After you issue an invoice, you want to get paid for it. I guess where I'd say we're focusing on is the intersection of two areas. Uh, and obviously you have to have Salesforce for this, but 
what happens when an opportunity is marked closed one? A bunch of things happen. A, the invoice has to be issued. Sometimes taxes have to be calculated and paid on that. Payment has to be received. Sometimes a product has to be shipped. But there's all these areas where you have third-party rigid data. And what I mean by rigid is you, Andy, might go into Salesforce and look at an opportunity and say, we initially put this at 50%. I just get the feeling this is not going to go ahead. I'm going to lower it to 10%. Your opportunity probability is your discretion. Whereas if a customer pays you and there is a payment in your accounting system, you should not nor cannot change that. That is a third-party record of what has actually happened. Same thing for invoices. There is an invoice in your accounting system. Same thing for taxes or shipping or any of that area. These are third-party systems that the data is out there. And why wouldn't you want a live, up-to-date copy of that data in Salesforce for everyone to see? And also, why wouldn't you want to then open up that data to select members of your staff so they can write into the third-party system, but within Salesforce? And I think that's our niche. So basically, anything that happens after the opportunity is marked closed one that involves systems of record, that's our focus. I didn't know that would be our focus. All of this came about because when I was running Third Sector IT in London, which is a Salesforce consultancy, I was amazed that I couldn't see whether an invoice had been issued in Salesforce or not. And I thought, I can't be the only one having this problem. So we started looking at whether we could build a custom solution. And I knew a few other people thought this was a problem. So I thought, I'll, I'll build an app. How hard can it be? I later on learned just how brutally hard it can be. But I, I think that naivete helped me get involved. But this all came about just because we had the simple question, has an invoice been issued to our consulting customers? And has it been paid? And the inability to find that out in Salesforce meant that we either had to hire an admin just to do some data entry back and forth, or I had to give everyone access to zero, which has its own problems. So that problem I faced eight, nine years ago led us to where we are today.